Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Today, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., who would have been 90 this year. We'll look back at his 1967 speech on society's three evils, war, racism, and poverty, with racial and economic justice activist Heather Mickey. Dr. King mentioned this, this idea that racism is an ill that is not only poisonous to people of color, but it's something that rots at the soul of white people and that is fundamentally weakens our democracy and makes the United States a much poorer country than it could be otherwise. And then Martin Luther King Jr. takes on pirates. Not the eye patch kind. After giving the famous I Have a Dream oration, one of Dr. King's lawyers did subsequently copyright the speech. And the fly-by-night company that put out the pirated version on vinyl, you know, clearly had no grounds to stand on. Steadily rising income inequality, an unpopular and never-ending foreign war, and elected officials who don't understand why everyone gets so offended by white supremacy. Looking good, 2019. But none of this is new. When it comes to injustice, every day is Groundhog Day. In 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his Three Evils speech at the National Conference on New Politics, where he spoke of the, quote, giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. To talk about the progress, or lack thereof, we've made against these foes, we're joined by NBC News analyst, frequent Meet the Press guest, Bill Maher Show regular, former head of Demos, and current Fair and Just Fellow at Brooklyn Community Foundation, Heather McGee. Welcome to 112BK. I'm so glad to be here. So this is not his best-known speech, and it's delivered three years after the I Have a Dream speech, which is very lofty and aspirational. Mm -hmm. But in this speech, he talks about his disillusionment and betrayal, and the tone is Mm -hmm. much darker. Mm -hmm. And here we are, many, many years later, and we're grappling with some of the same issues. Should we be surprised? Is the moral arc arcing towards justice? When are we going to get to justice? When does that happen? I see it. I think, I think I've been to the mountaintop and I see it. We, we have to hold on to that, right? Mm-hmm. We, you know, I, I think a lot about African-American politics. I'm an African-American woman from the south side of Chicago originally. If I think about the black politics, they always have hope. If you think about Jesse Jackson, Keep Hope Alive, you think about Barack Obama, Hope and Change, uh, you know, a little closer to home, Harold Washington, it's essential to have that hope. Now, what you hear in Dr. King's speech on the three evils is certainly, it was a conversation he was having about really giving his analysis about the problem. It was not the invocation that he would have done inside a church or certainly that he did on the Lincoln Memorial. And you have to have the right analysis of the problem so that you can have the vision of where we need to be to change it. A few things struck me about the speech. As I mentioned, one is how contemporary it seems, Mm -hmm. down to the fact that he literally has a passage where he's like, not all white people. He's like, don't (laughs) worry. I don't think all white people are racist. I was like, he had to do that, too. That's (laughs) awful. And then the other thing is that, as you said, I think that we all have to have hope going forward. But it also makes me feel good that even Dr. King had moments where he's like, Mm -hmm. it's a dark time, Mm -hmm. guys, and we've got to get to work. And he really gets into the weeds on some, like, policy implementation Mm -hmm. as well. In the speech, he talks about an adult literacy program in Chicago where the AMP was going to give 750 jobs to people who enrolled in this program and how they were thwarted by the Democratic machine, like really gets into the weeds on some of these things. And it's so nice to see that side of him as well, because I think so often we think of him as like, 
an orator. But really, he also had some real, real policy suggestions. That's right. I mean, he was the kind of leader that we don't see all the time. He was an inspiring visionary. He was also a brass tacks community organizer. He was a political strategist. And he was someone who even the odds that my ancestors were facing at the time, he always was able to show people another world. That combination of being a political strategist, an organizer, an orator, and a leader who actually believed that we would get there, we just don't see that that often anymore. I want to read one section here. He mentions, we must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. And I think that this is feels very contemporary and also is language that scares a lot of people, this notion of radical redistrib- <laughs> redistribution. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts about that and how that touches on some of the work that you do? Absolutely. So it, that's very close to the core analysis that Demos was founded with. Demos, the organization that I led for the past four years, and I'm now a distinguished senior fellow of Demos. The, the name means the people. It's the Greek word for the people and the root word of democracy. And the core foundational analysis is that the economic inequality and the racial inequality that we see in our society is really born out of an inequality of power, political inequality, and that these three inequalities are absolutely interlinking. And so what we know is that when you have policies that give more political power to working class people, to women, to people of color, when there's more reflective democracy, as we just gained in the House of Representatives for the first time in our history, then you have economic and social justice outcomes that are more reflective of the democratic will of all of the demos, the people. So absolutely, I think there needs to be a radical redistribution. Before the election of this past fall, um, 90% of the elected officials at all levels of our government were white, and two-thirds of them were white men, when, of course, 40% of the country is people of color. And so we've got to have a reflective democracy if we are going to realize the promise of this country and if we're going to really attack the inequality that right now is really ripping apart the fabric of our democracy. How do you assuage the fears of people who balk at the idea of redistribution because it suggests that they have to give up some of their power in order for somebody else to have a seat at Mm. the table? That's a good question. You know, I think two things about it. One, just in terms of a policy answer, um, we need to do redistribution, but we also need to do something that some economists call pre-distribution, where it's not just about taxes and spending, but it's also about the rules of the road for businesses and workers, so that before taxes even get collected, for example, a CEO can't pay himself $10,000 an hour when his coworker on the shop floor is making $7.25. You've got to have collective bargaining. You've got to have high minimum wage and overtime laws, so that you're talking about distributing the the pieces of the pie as they're being baked, let's put it that way. And then, you know, the other part of your question, I think, was really getting at something that is not just about policy, but is about sort of a fundamental mindset that this country is suffering from right now, which I believe is a zero-sum mentality. Mm -hmm. This idea that the presence or gaining power, for example, of people of color has to come at the expense of white people, or that women being able to have autonomy over their bodies and their careers has to come at the expense of men. 
we can't be a multiracial democracy and an equal society with that mindset. We can't be a multiracial democracy or an equal society with that mindset. This has got to be a place, the United States of America, where there is a way to share power equally among everyone, no matter what their background is, their gender, their sexuality, etc. And I think that we've got to have a different story that we tell, even about racism. Now, Dr. King mentioned this, not in this speech, but in other of his writings. Um, Langston Hughes talked about this, James Baldwin, um, even Frederick Douglass talked about this. This idea that racism is an ill that is not only poisonous to people of color, but it's something that rots at the soul of white people and that is fundamentally weakens our democracy and makes the United States a much poorer country than it could be otherwise. It sounds like you're really talking about sort of a scarcity mindset, to borrow a page from sociology, mm -hmm. like the marshmallow experiment where they gave kids marshmallows and they're like, if you don't eat the marshmallow, when I come back, you get two marshmallows. Right. And kids who were brought up in conditions of scarcity ate the marshmallow immediately because they didn't know if the person would ever come back. But if we can envision a future where everybody can get a marshmallow, like that, that's, that's a possibility, it seems like we might be able to make significant gains. Well, another application of that idea absolutely is, is climate change, which mm. is, of course, the existential threat to society as we know it. And if Dr. King were alive and had read the UN climate report and knew what was going on— He would have some things to say. He would have some things to say. And he, I think, though, would have a vision of abundance. I mean, mm. there's absolutely a possibility if we had the political equality, right, and if the fossil fuel companies couldn't write the rules for the rest of society as they do now— if we had political equality, you could see something like, you know, the Green New Deal, where you actually have a transformation of our economy in a very positive fashion. Um, yes, there would be some sacrifices. I think we need to have a World War-style mobilization where everyone is changing their behavior and everyone's willing to do things differently than they have to save the planet and save the species that are going extinct on a daily basis. But we could also see an entire spark of a new set of economic sectors that we don't have today if we had the political equality so that the interests and needs of working people were put ahead of those of the fossil fuel companies. Do you see climate change and racial justice as being intertwined? I do. You know, when you look at both it from the harm perspective, uh, the idea of environmental injustice, the idea that basically because inequalities in our democracy, if there are environmental harms, they will fall first and hardest on those who don't have a voice, who are not reflected in the halls of power, whom politicians and polluters think won't be able to garner public will to stop, say, the siting of a refinery or the poisoning of, of pipes. And so there's injustice, environmental and racial injustice that are intertwined. But I also think that on the positive side, there is an opportunity for us to write the rules of the climate transformation in a way that the people who were last in line in the fossil fuel economy could be first in line in the green jobs economy. One of the, one of the hopeful things about this speech is that it really ends on sort of an uplifting revolutionary note where Dr. King says, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. 
So what we must all see is that these are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation, and out of the wombs of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. And I think that is so hopeful, and especially you know, looking to other countries and seeing our future as being linked to other countries as well. And as you mentioned, envisioning new models, whether that's climate change or economic growth or whatnot, mm-hmm. is really, I think, contemporary and, and food for thought. Absolutely. I think we're seeing right now another moment of resurgence. I think so many people have have linked this moment of sort of democratic crisis for the United States to what it felt like in the late 1960s, where there were people in motion the way they are today. One out of every four Americans has gone to a protest in the past two years. That's extraordinary. We're a country that um, often doesn't even bother to vote. And look how much civic engagement there has been. And in little pockets across the country, you are seeing uh, democratic socialists and socialists come into office. You are seeing people asking the big questions and demanding big, big ideas for solutions. So tell me a little bit more about your work. So you were president for four years at Demos, Mm -hmm. and now you are a fellow at the Brooklyn Community (laughs) Foundation. Yes. Can you tell me about the work that you're doing with BCF um, and about your decision to leave sort of an organization with a national profile to focus more on the local? Yeah. So I am um, really proud and thrilled to be uh, a fair and just fellow at the Brooklyn Community Foundation. The Brooklyn Community Foundation allows people like you and me, Brooklyn residents, to think about the issues that we care so much about, that we are listening to in the media, that we want to focus on on a national level, whether it's immigration or affordable housing or environmental justice or racial justice, and recognize that it's all happening right in our own backyard all the time. It's sometimes hard, I think, for people who are going about their lives to find a way to make a difference in their local community. And that's why when I was approached by the folks at the Brooklyn Community Foundation, I thought, well, this is great because this is an organization that spends about $7 million a year giving money to local Brooklyn, mostly grassroots organizations with a very much a strong racial and gender equity lens. And these organizations are doing things like helping immigrant families that have been separated at the border right here in Brooklyn. A group called Integrate NYC that is a student group that wants to deal with segregation in New York public schools. I mean, these are the kinds of issues that are absolutely on the national scene, and yet you can really have an impact by being part of the Brooklyn Community Foundation here at home. This is super helpful, I think, for people who, especially in the wake of the election, mm-hmm. were like, well, what do, what I, do? do? I do? Yeah. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. Who, who do I donate yeah. to? Where do I volunteer my time? Mm-hmm. Um, so if there are people who want to get involved in a very yeah. local level, what do they do? Yeah. How do they find out? Well, they can go to the Brooklyn Community Foundation website. They can go to the one of some of the events um, that BCF has. Uh, they give out a prize every year called the Spark Prize, um, and they have a phenomenal breakfast that's coming up in February. Who doesn't where, love breakfast? Who doesn't love breakfast? And to hear about, you know, about half a dozen groups that are the recipients of this prize this year, all of the leaders are women. Many of them are women of color who are doing incredible work here in, in Brooklyn. And... BCF is sort of a way that you can 
understand what the landscape of nonprofits and grassroots and social justice organizations is in Brooklyn. It's hard to sort of, you know, Google and find out who's working on this issue that I care about. But you can give to the foundation and you can also become a volunteer and really get to know the organizations in your backyard. And what is your work specifically with the Brooklyn Community Foundation? So the foundation's mission uh, is to spark change for a fair and just world, and I'm a fair and just fellow. And they just started having this fellowship this year, so I'm the inaugural fair and just fellow. And my job is really to do a few things. One to help bring some of the ideas and analysis that I learned in my career at Demos to the foundation, to advise them about some of the issues that they should be working on that they might not be working on, to connect them to other social justice leaders in the country, to help BCF has an incredible sort of learning atmosphere to help sort of uh, support that learning atmosphere. I'm also doing some public you know, media and communications and talking about the foundation, but also talking about the values, the fundamental values of fairness and justice. So that's what the fellowship has been so far. And they're supporting me also as I work on that book that will be out next year. So I want to circle back to the three evils speech. Mm. You know, again, he calls them a, a triple-pronged sickness. Mm. He's talking about racial injustice. He's talking about economic inequality as sort of exemplified by a very materialistic society where we are obsessed with consumption while neglecting those who have less. And also militarism. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War, and he's talking about how the brunt of that labor, that war machine, is born on the backs of black people. How do you think we're doing today? Do you think that if Dr. King were here today, he would be proud of us? Do you think he would be upset that we haven't made more progress? I think if Dr. King were here today, we would have made more progress. I mean, Mm. the country does need leaders, moral leaders, visionaries to show us the way and to to fight the fight. And the program of assassination that happened in the 1960s with so many of our social justice leaders, so many of our racial justice leaders, was absolutely devastating. That it said, had its intended effect. It had its intended yes. effect. That said, I look today at the budget, the federal budget, and you can see the signs of those three illnesses, absolutely. This president um, has proudly boosted the defense budget to one of its highest levels ever. It's also a time when we've got record deficits because of the costs of basically kickbacks to wealthy donors in the form of the massive, massive tax giveaway that happened last year. And then we've got so much of our social spending being directed towards incarceration, mostly of, or predominantly or disproportionately, of brown and black people, um, and increasingly of women for economic crimes and for self-protection. So we've got a values document in the federal budget, and it's very clear that just as Dr. King indicted, we still have that kind of misappropriation and, and misalignment of our values. Maybe I'll just pull a couple more quotes out. Um, So this one, I think, is pretty powerful. Dr. King says in the speech, the fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor. I feel like this is rhetoric that we still see to this day, the bootstrap type of mentality Mm. that nothing was given to me. Mm. How do you combat that? How do you counter that argument without threatening the person making that argument? In the research and interviews for my book, I've had to engage head on with the very uh, psychological and mental constructs of whiteness. 
so often when someone has built a psyche that is fragile, and whiteness is an inherently a fragile identity. It's an identity that was created not out of some tradition or background or culture or even national identity, but an identity that was simply about skin color and simply about hierarchy and privilege, which is different than saying, I'm Irish and Scottish American, it's saying, no, I am actually just white, which right. means I am white in the social hierarchy that puts white over all other colors And of the skin. concept of whiteness grew to expand and include Irish Italians right. as those people rose right. in, the, in the hierarchy. Exactly. And so one of the core things you see is projection. And this is one of those examples, the idea that black people are lazy. When black people came into this country solely to work, and if they stopped working at any point, they would have the threat of violence or death. So you have a southern plantation system where there were people who were making the equivalent of millions of dollars and were living the life of retired people. And that is one of the things that happens so often, is that a country where the government has, for almost all of its history, explicitly favored one race over all others, you now have this idea that the government is completely on the side of people of color. Um, that's a very sort of like white nationalist or even just white anti-government conservative idea. I don't want to support Obamacare or welfare because it only goes to black people. Of course, that's not true, but it's a really important psychological function that happens to try to shift blame away and reverse what's actually true. So you've mentioned that you've grappled with the concept of whiteness a lot. Uh, you also have dealt with white people, in particular, one caller to a C-SPAN show, which is a notorious episode. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Sure. This was in um, mid-August in 2016. Mm -hmm. It was a sort of Donald Trump campaign summer, lots of racialized rhetoric. And I went on this show on C-SPAN called Washington Journal, which is just a, a call-in show. It's sort of like a radio call-in show, but on TV. And I'd never been on before, but I knew that there was sort of the uh, notorious C-SPAN caller, which during the Obama era had become this sort of senior citizen racist caller who would call in and talk about conspiracy theories. So I sort of girded myself the whole time. But about halfway through the show, I got a call from a man. Uh, he identified himself as Gary from North Carolina. And the first words out of his mouth were, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. I was hoping that your guest can help me change my mind about some things. Um, I'm a white male and I am prejudiced. And as you can imagine, you know, both the host and I sort of stood up a little straighter and uh, maybe inhaled a bit. And then he went on to describe his prejudice, his fear of black men, talked about drugs and gangs and crime. Then he said, but I want to know what you can do to help me change because I want to be a better American. And, and then I remember the host said, Heather? <laughs> to you, Heather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what can he do? So I just, you know, I'm on live TV, right? Mm -hmm. So I just, I took a breath and, and I said, thank you. Those are the first words that came to mind. Thank you. Because admitting your prejudice is very, very rare. And so I thanked him 
for admitting his prejudice. And then, you know, because I'm a person who believes in solutions, I just off the top of my head gave him some thoughts about what he could do to sort of integrate his life, to learn about black history and put what he sees in, in the world in context. I told him to, to turn off the TV news because we know that it overrepresents black crime and underrepresents white crime. And that was it. So, you know, there was a maybe a two minute interchange between the two of us. And then one of my colleagues put the clip on Facebook that weekend, and by Monday it had over a million views, and it really went viral. And I ended up meeting Gary from North Carolina, having a number of conversations with him, and then meeting him in person. And still to this day, you know, I send him pictures of my son, and he, you know, sends me pictures of his dog, and and he is someone who has, you know, he's still conservative, he's still a rural North Carolinian still votes the way he votes, but he has taken it upon himself to integrate his life, Mm -hmm. to have, you know, conversations with and become friends with people of color, to read voraciously about African-American history. He loves Cornell West. I mean, he's really taken that advice to heart. And it does give me some hope that we can change. It's like addiction, right? The first step is to admit that you have a problem. I mean, we're all racist. Yeah. Everyone is racist. Yes. And so we cannot the, be in this country and inhale the oxygen that is a, a racial hierarchy without taking some of that in. Right. Even people of color have a lot of internalized racism. Absolutely. And so I think that my hope is that we spend this Martin Luther King Day thinking not just about service, which is wonderful, but also specifically about the ill of racism. And do our best to commit to acknowledging that there's no possible way that a country that was founded on a belief in a hierarchy of human value, in an economy that was founded on the uh, kidnapping of people and the separation of families and the theft of land, there's no way that we don't still have those beliefs swimming around us. And so now let's just take a little bit of American pride and ingenuity in thinking about how to overcome it. Heather McGee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, and Martin Luther King Jr. have in common? They've all been recording artists with Motown Records. That's right, the Reverend recorded spoken word LPs for Barry Gordy's label. And Gordy was in line to land MLK's biggest hit, the I Have a Dream speech. That is, before some intellectual property pirates grabbed it and published it on their own. This led to the case of King v. Mr. Maestro and a complicated copyright conundrum that makes it very challenging and expensive to license and use MLK's speeches. To tell us more, we're joined on the phone by author and historian David J. Garrow. Thanks so much for joining us. Happily. So... The I Have a Dream speech was pirated and put out by unauthorized parties on vinyl, I'm assuming. Um, And tell us about the case that uh, came about that came after that piracy. That case way back in 1963-1964 was relatively easy and, and straightforward. You know, after giving the 
famous I Have a Dream oration that was you know, broadcast live nationally on television, one of Dr. King's lawyers did subsequently copyright the speech. And the uh, sort of fly-by-night company that put out the uh, uh, pirated version on, on vinyl, you know, clearly had uh, no grounds to stand on. Um, so that's a, a very straightforward, uh, you know, old decision. But it gets more complicated from there. Is that correct? Well, it gets more complicated only in the mid-1980s after Dr. King's longtime literary agent, Joan Davies, retired. From really 1956-1957, up past the time of Dr. King's assassination, uh, Miss Davies was Dr. King's literary representative, um, an utterly professional, you know, very nice lady. But when she passed from the scene, the King children, Coretta Scott King's children, moved to take control of, of uh, his literary property in a vastly more aggressive way. And that's what led to uh, multiple problems from the late 1980s uh, and then throughout all of the 1990s. And so today it's actually quite difficult to use an excerpt of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, to see them on YouTube, for example. And this culminated recently in Ava DuVernay when she was making Selma, not even trying to secure rights uh, because those rights, I believe, are with DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg's company. What is the impetus behind the family's exercising control over his intellectual property with such an iron grip? The family, uh, which runs the King Estate, has been uh, uh, bluntly straightforward for roughly 20 years now in wanting to maximize its own private personal income uh, from the use of Dr. King's words. And again and again, as you uh, very nicely mentioned with the uh, example of the Selma film, that has either blocked or intimidated uh, a variety of, of users from avoiding Dr. King's words. In that Selma film, there is a, you know, King character, <laughs> but the words he speaks are, are you know, faux King they convey the substance of, of what, uh, you know, Dr. King said in 1965, uh, but they're not the actual words. Now, there's the very well-known legal principle of fair use, which is a complicated analytical construct uh, that allows for limited quotation uh, from any work, pretty much. Um, and so uh, an author um, who wants to quote uh, let's say 5% or 10% of I Have a Dream or a King Sermon, anything, should be on completely solid, safe, legal ground um, so long as it's for a serious purpose and it's a low proportion of the uh, entirety of, of the work in question. What would you like to see happen? Do you feel like the King children are within their fair rights to be protecting the legacy of their father? You mentioned financial gain, but perhaps there's also a concern about uh, the ways in which he might be portrayed in, in, future, in future works. Or would you like to see this sort of pass more into public use so that more people can be exposed to his brilliant writing? On multiple occasions, uh, the King estate 
uh, has licensed use of his words and image uh, to commercial advertisers um, in ways that uh, are, are just frankly tacky and, and have been heavily criticized. Um, this goes back almost 20 years now, starting with, with a, an ad uh, put forward by a French uh, communications firm, Alcatel. Um, there have been other subsequent examples. So it has not protected King from being commercially exploited, but it has intimidated serious people, like the filmmaker uh, whom you mentioned with the Selma film. It has intimidated serious people from using Dr. King's actual words and, and teachings more broadly. And many, uh, many, many of his best sermons that he delivered at Ebenezer Baptist Church that exist on tape uh, are just not publicly available at all. And those are by far the most powerful parts of, of, his, of his legacy. Uh, David J. Garrow, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your talking to us. Thank you. That's the show for today. We'll be back on Wednesday with a visit from a journalist who wondered what organized mindfulness at a museum might look like. Hope you can join us. One to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 